if you're turning your Bibles or on your phones, uh, we'll be in John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. So let me give you some insight on how my brain works. Um, so a few weeks ago, we went to the store and they had sausage. Jimmy, I think it's Jimmy Dean. They have sausage, but it's cut and it looks like bacon. I said, sweet. That's my two favorite things in the world. Kind of together. Because, you know, the problem with sausage is if you... It's a little bit trickier to cook than bacon because you got to really pay attention. you got to cover it, put it in water, depending on what kind of cooking links especially, right? So you may ask, what does sausage and bacon or sausagey bacon or bacony sausage have to do with theology and John? Well, I cooked it. I had some this morning. It's, it's good. It's not bad. <laughs> But it's not bacon. Right? Because part of the thing with the sausage is it's sausagey, right? It's, it's got the texture, it's got some spices, things like that. So it's sausage. And bacon is bacon. So no matter what they try to make bacon out of, you really can't make bacon anything out of anything but pig. It's my opinion anyway, right? So if you want to eat turkey bacon, feel free, it's all good. But right, they're not this they're not the same thing. You can't make one become the other. Right? And so, again, what does this have to do with theology is the fact that, so we are talking about things that aren't what they appear to be or things that aren't one thing, even though people may want to make it that way. And we're going to see here that John, we're going to see in a few minutes, right, people came rushing out to John to figure out who he was. Like, what are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you... Like, the, the questions that we have on the paper. Who are you? What, what authority do you have to be out here doing these things? And then who do you see or who, who are you here talking about? Right? And so prophecies are difficult to understand and to know if they have been fulfilled or at least close to being fulfilled. Right? When we went through Revelation, we talked about it. There's, in my lifetime, there's been several times where the world was supposed to end on a certain day. You know, May 22nd, 2016, or whatever it was, the world will end. Jesus is coming back. And this is going to happen. That's going to happen. So people take and they try to make bacon out of sausage, essentially. And so Judaism had been, has been plagued, and they had been plagued even up to this point in, in the first century with false messiahs. Because they may try to fulfill or may say they are fulfilling or, or they're, they're doing things they are maybe manipulating the prophecies for their own good. Say, look, here's me. This is me. Look, I check all the boxes. I am the Messiah. You should follow me. And they do it for ill gain. right? They do it for their own things. They want to have power. Now, even with us, the David Koresh and the Waco people thought he was the Messiah. Things are kind of, you know, a little more to it than that. But, but he, people thought he was the person to follow. So that, they were, during that whole thing in Waco and everything else, they were doing it. But others that we have in the Bible, like Joseph, David, Moses, Joshua, and Esther, like we just covered Esther, to name a few of them, they act in a capacity as the Messiah. They act as a Savior. Right? When we went through Esther, she saved her people. So she, in a sense, was a type of Messiah for that time being. Now, she's not the Messiah, Make sure we're clear, right? She or jo jo Joseph or Moses, none of them are the Messiah, but they were acting and they were foreshadowing who was to come. And so, because they were decreed by God to be there at a certain time in a certain place to act that way, but they, again, they are not the Messiah. 
And so in our story here, and it's important for us to kind of have this set up correctly, Judea had been under Roman rule for roughly, you know, 50 to 60 years, maybe 70, somewhere in that realm, you know, by this time. So Rome was expanding power, you know, expanding their empire. And so Julius Caesar was like 48 B.C., so not too far off from here. And really, you think about, you learn history, like world history, you kind of like to think that all these events are way spread out. But really, Julius Caesar, all that was only roughly 50 years or so before Jesus was born. And so they're, in the time scales, that's pretty close. That's almost on top of each other. And so that sets up our tone. So they, are spent, they have spent the last 60 years, so almost two generations worth of people have lived under Roman rule now. And so they had a time when they were free and independent. They remember that. And so they want to get rid of the, the people who are ruling them. They want to get rid of Rome, who is now taxing them and doing everything else and saying where they can and can't go and do all these other things. So the Messianic prophecies not only came to say, look, they're going to come, the Messiah is going to come and restore his people and to set up the kingdom. But that setting up of the kingdom also meant that the other kingdom, Rome, was going to be overthrown. And so that's a double, that's a double win. God comes back, kicks out the Romans. Perfect. Right? Because they just, a lot of people didn't like the Roman rule. They didn't like what was going on. And then you had the puppet government also doing things and said, you know, dictating what was going on. And so all of this is, and so, they're, so they're, the search for the Messiah is on. And so they had to investigate and make sure to see if this was the real guy or not. And that's where we are here. That we're going to read John chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 19. For this part, we're just going to read 1 through 24. As we get through the, the rest of the outline, we'll read them you know, just like we normally do. We'll read the rest of it as we go. But this sets the stage here that John the Baptist has been foretold. Now we're going to get into the story. because this, So this starts the story proper. You know, the first 18 verses were just a prologue. So John's kind of giving you the outline, the big, big picture. And now he's going to get into the actual story with Jesus' ministry. And so here it is. This is John chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 19 all the way to 24. So John says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? And he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then? They asked him. Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No. That's frustrating. Who are you then? Tell us, who are you? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, this is John, John the Baptist, he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So that's kind of the transition sentence and we'll stop there. Because it gives information of, of who sent what, who sent whom and, and what they're doing. So here's the main point that we need to be or listen to. It's similar-ish to last week's, but since everybody wasn't here, it's totally fine. And really, the main point's always the main point. Always point people to Jesus because He is on His way. Right? When we preach, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And every time we talk about the Bible, we talk about Jesus. We can just read the Bible and just that's it. 
but we do like to, I do like to give explanation. But really, we should always be pointing people to Jesus. We should be answering the question of who are you talking about. They should know automatically, oh, you're talking about Jesus. And they may give you an eye roll, but who cares? I'm here to talk about Jesus. So when we do this, people may ask to say some questions, just as they asked, did, asked John. So the first question we see is, who are you? So the religious rulers from the temple, known as the Sanhedrin, right? So they're the people who kind of run the temple. They're the church structure, essentially. They had gotten wind of John going out and preaching and being outside doing things and getting people. So he must have been gathering crowds because by this time, they send a faction, they send some people out to go ask, hey, go find out who this guy is. What's he doing? So they send out priests and Levites they ask him straight up, who are you? And so instead of answering with a positive saying, well, I'm John. Nice to meet you. Right? I'm just a guy. They're like, well, are you the Messiah? He's like, no. What, what do you mean, no? What are you doing out here? Right? So, so the way the evangelist described in some of your other Bible translations, because the CSB kind of cuts it out, but it says his answer is he confessed, he did not deny, he confessed that I'm not the Christ. So you have this double emphasis on it. Just like he's saying, I'm really, really not the Messiah. I'm not, not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm really, really not. And so this emphasis is putting on it. But what, it, what he's also doing is John is the first witness of Jesus on earth in John's gospel. Right? That can publicly say who or, who or is or is not Jesus, the Messiah. Right? We know that Mary knew, the wise men knew who he was. Right? We get it from Matthew and Luke's gospel. So we know other people were aware, even Herod was aware of who Jesus was, or at least the Messiah had come at this point. But here in John's gospel, he, this is the first public non-denial or first positive affirmation of, of, of the, the one to come. And so it's important also because at the end of the book, we see that Peter publicly denies Jesus. So he also is sort of putting these two side by side to compare them and say, look, John had probably never met Jesus, really, except maybe at a family picnic. But he said, look, John knows who he is, and Peter, even though he lived with him, he said, no, I don't know that guy. He's not the, he's not the guy. I'm not him. <clears throat> and so with this question answered, they, they kind of go on and say, all right, well, if you're not the Messiah, who are you? Are you Elijah? And so Elijah was foretold to come ahead of the Messiah. Or they say, or are you the prophet? So it's another kind of not, not named person, but again, somebody who's coming before the Messiah is supposed to arrive. You know, they're trying to figure out where to, where to check John off on the list. Okay, so he's not Messiah. He's not the Messiah. So are, do you fulfill these prophecies? Do you fulfill Malachi? Do you fulfill this one and Zechariah? Do you fulfill this one? You know, which, one, which one are you doing here so we can get it straight? Because like they, look, look what you say in verse 22, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. Right? You ever have that with your boss? Like, if I don't ask you, they're going to ask me that question. So I have to ask you to get the information so I give it back to him. If I go back and say it, I don't know, he didn't know, he didn't tell me, I look like a big dummy because I didn't even ask. And so what do I need you for then? Right, that may be some of what's going on here. But John, he's like, no, I'm neither of those people. 
said, what can you tell us about yourself? Come on, give us something, man. We walked all the way out here, out into the woods, right? Because they're living in the city. He's out by Jordan. He's out by the river. So they had, probably had to take a walk to get out there a little bit. Like, here, we are in the woods next to the creek. You're dunking people in the water. What is going on? And he's like, look, here I am. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So in the other Gospels, when you read them, because this is one of the stories that's in every Gospel. Or this account is in every single Gospel. But, but there's something interesting about what John does and how the, other people, how the other Gospel writers portray it. They just record it and they say, look, John fulfilled this prophecy. You know, just like Isaiah said, here it is. This is, what, who, this is who John is. But John, the evangelist, or John the gospel writer, takes it one step further, and he has John the Baptist, he records John the Baptist saying, I am the voice. It's a little bit of difference, right? He's not just being applied, he's applying it to himself. So John knows who he is. He knows what his job is in this in, in God's kingdom, but he is applying this and saying, I am. And so John is confirming his own words that I am the voice. And so the context of the overall of Isaiah 40, which is part of what we read for our call to worship, it's about making the roads straighter and better, basically clearing all the obstacles to bring back the Israelites from the exile back into the promised land. That's, that's what that passage in Isaiah 40 is about. But really, it's also the good news that they are being brought back. But the greater context is that God is the one bringing back His people. He is restoring them to their kingdom. And see, take it one step further to apply it to the Messiah, is that the announcement is that Christ is on His way is the start of the good news. Right? We have this, He is the herald of the good news saying, look, the Messiah is on the way, He's coming back, I am making straight the ways of the Lord, I'm clearing things out of the way for Him to bring Him in, for Him to be ushered in to the world. And so John understands his place as a missionary and as a witness and as a prophet. And he's also the herald of the coming king. But he also doesn't make it a bigger deal than necessary. Jesus explains in Matthew and Mark that John is indeed Elijah. Right? Jesus' own words say, yeah, John is Elijah. He confirms that. So some people like to think that, well, the Gospels don't match then. But again, it's different perspectives from different people. Jesus confirms that John understood on some level, but he didn't really necessarily consider himself to be Elijah. Again, he knew what he was doing. He knew that God had sent him to do these things. But it doesn't mean they're wrong, that they, they don't agree. You just have two different pieces of the puzzle to give you the whole picture. So the, the Gospels are actually more coherent and more together than anybody likes to say because, again, this story appears in all four Gospels, so it would be super easy to have them just basically copy the whole thing, each one. But we see information because John has different information. He has access to different information the other ones do. He's also making a bigger point, a bigger theological point. That this is indeed fulfillment of the scripture. This is the prophecies. But each, people have, each person has their role to play. So German theologian Werner Beider asks, Isn't it then the permanent task of the church, precisely because she is aware of her missionary mission in the world, to make clear to herself the separation from the world into which she is called with her faith. 
So how does that apply to John? So John had the faith that he was foretelling the word about Jesus. He wasn't being squeezed into a box necessarily just to check off the box of the prophecies. And just like that, the church needs to be aware of, of what our job is, our missionary mission. That's what it is. It's, it's our mission, our job, to go out and preach the gospel to people no matter what the world thinks about it. I saw, I saw a thing the other day. It said, imagine if scientists went around knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, I'm here to talk about good, the good news of science. Well, let's talk about some electrons. You're probably like, no thanks, I'm good. Right, just, like, just like they do with us. Like, because people don't want to hear about electrons necessarily unless there's some kind of test or something that can save me money somehow on my electricity bill. But they kind of, they're, they, they're laughing at Christians who go, because we don't have just a, a message about physics. We have a message about their hope and their eternality. Where are they going to go? How are they live their lives? It's more than just being a good person. It's about... You being forgiven for your sins and you being able to live your life free of guilt because you know that Jesus paid for your sin debt. And we don't want to keep that to ourselves. We don't want to be the only ones who get to go to heaven. That would be a lonely place. Like, oh, all, these, all this great news in here. I'm the only one here. That's like going to Disneyland by yourself. It might be good the first hour because you can ride on the rides you want, but then you're done. Right? We need to tell people because that is our job. It's not our job to convert them, but it's our job to tell them about the good news. Because John had the faith to go out and do this. He was preaching in the woods. He was eating locust and honey. He was dressed in a camel hair shirt. He looked like a crazy person probably. But yet he had his message that was incredible to say this Messiah is coming. And so verse 24 acts as this transition, right? So they had been sent from the Pharisees. So this larger group of people, it's all the same group that started in verse 19. I want to make sure we say that. But, but they come and ask just what this question here in, in point two of your outline says, what authority do you have? So they asked him, why do you then baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? If you're none of these people, what are you doing out here? And so the Pharisees came with the group and they were asking John why he was baptizing people because they did not authorize it. We didn't give you permission. You can get your form signed in triplicate, right? just like a normal bureaucracy. You need to come in and pay your fee and uh, come in here and get your token and your license and make sure it's displayed on the pole next to where you're at so we know what's going on so if anything happens we know who to come and blame. Right? Baptism wasn't unusual even in the first century. But the Pharisees took more of an interest in this because, as one commentator says, there may be a link between baptism, repentance, and the final judgment. Right? That's always the two things. Baptize, be, you know, repent and be baptized. Repent, baptize and be repent and repent. Right? Those are some phrasings that we see all the way through Acts and the other Gospels. And even in Paul's letters a little bit. where There's a linkage between that. Right? Baptism, you're being dunked. That's what the word really means. You're, you're being put under the water. But it's a symbolic gesture of your sins being washed away. And you also your death and resurrection of your old self and being raised again as a new person. Right? That's, how we, that's how we as Baptists see it. That's how you know, a lot of it, a lot of the other you know, evangelical religions, that's, there's, there's some nuances, but that's pretty much the gist of it. And normally though, baptism was used to mark Gentiles, a Gentile's conversion into Judaism. 
And they would usually just do it themselves. They would be like, well, I'm going to be baptized. And they'd go over to the, go over to the beach of Guadalupe and dip in the water and say, oh, I'm done. Good job. Nobody's around, but it's, I did it. But here, John is have a, basically, usually you see it in the movies, he has a line of people up on the bank and they're coming in and they're dunking people. And his was a once and for all cleansing. The way he was preaching, it was, it was just, this, is, this is a one-time good deal. You don't need to keep doing this. You don't need to keep baptizing yourself or getting rebaptized. Because this isn't just a spiritual bath. This is a one-time good deal. You are cleansed. You are done. And so one commentator says that the question about why and by whose authority are you baptizing comes down to the fact that John must be offering baptism as a means of escaping the final judgment, and so he must be some kind of end times figure. Even though he wasn't necessarily owning up to whatever was going on, he says, look, they kind of figured, you're doing this, you have to have some kind of authority. And so another idea, though, that what was going on was that the Sanhedrin may have enjoyed their relationship with Rome. And they were allowed freedom in controlling a good part of the city and the, and the people itself when it came to religious matters. So if you come and throw that up, you overthrow that, or you upset that balance, now they're going to be out of a job because the people are going to not follow them as much as they're going to follow somebody else. Right. We, don't want, we don't want somebody coming in here threatening their power and position by preaching about a Messiah and getting people all riled up. Right. So John Bunyan, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress and a bunch of other books. He was put in prison partly because he was not licensed to preach. So the church said, you don't have the authority to preach. So in, late, in England in the late 1600s, the rules were different. People had to be licensed to preach by the Anglican church. And so John Bunyan was arrested under the Covenantal Act of 1593, which made it an offense to attend a religious gathering other than at, a, at the parish church with more than five people outside their family. So if you wanted to have a church service at your house, you couldn't do it unless you had more than less than five people. And so the offense was punishable by 30 months imprisonment followed by banishment or execution if the person failed to promise not to reoffend. So John, the, or John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison by way of you know, comparison of how, what, the, what it was and what he did. So the act had been little used and Bunyan's arrest, this is what Wikipedia says, and this is, it's legit, I checked with other stuff, but this is the way it was easier. The act had been little used and Bunyan's arrest was probably due in part to concerns that nonconformist religious meetings were being held as a cover for people plotting against the king. And this was right after they had a big, the Civil War in England. So they were like, well, you nonconformists, you guys are the big problem. So you guys are probably actually having a secret meeting. So we want to limit these meetings. So we're going to throw everybody in jail. But you see, both John the Baptist and John Bunyan, maybe it's something with that name, they did not require man's approval to preach. God had given them this ability and this authority. And so John the Evangelist tells us that this, this is what John the Baptist is about in verse 6. Right? He says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was going to be the witness. right? God sent him. God prepared him. God did all these things for him. And we can also infer from the text that it seems like John kept baptizing 
even though the temple people went away, they're like, all right, well, we didn't really get good answers. So we're going to leave now because it's a long walk back and I don't want to do it in the dark. So the next day, in verse 29, so we see this, who do we, who do we see? And so it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now John is older by at least six months by all, if you do the math roughly. It's roughly, John is roughly six months older than Jesus because his mother and Mary were both pregnant roughly the same time. But John would have been before. And so on, in human terms, John is older. It's his older cousin than Jesus. But he's preaching and he's going on the next day. You know, whatever time Jesus gets there, John gets there. He's, he's at the river. He's baptizing people. He's preaching repentance, teaching about the Messiah. And lo and behold, here comes the person that John is telling everyone about. He shows up in the middle of his sermon. This is like talking about Star Wars and all of a sudden Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford come walking in the back door. Like, oh, we could ask these guys. They, they were there. Right? That would be the equivalent of us. And so John calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we see that Jesus derives His power from the Father and it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit when, he gets bat when, G when John baptizes Him. And John trying to John the evangelist kind of covers that quickly, but he doesn't go in the same depth of, of the other gospel writers because, again, they've already done the work. So he doesn't need to repeat it and be verbatim just to copy the, what they said. He, everybody knows exactly what happened here. So there's no need to, to cover this ground again. But people are probably like, who? Who's this guy? You pointed to some guy who came walking, you said he's the Lamb of God, but what does that mean? Who is he? I've never seen him before. And if everybody was maybe familiar with him, and we kind of see it later, that's one of those, well, he's from Nazareth. He's the carpenter's son. I know, I've known him all my life. He's not special. But John says, here comes the Lamb of God. And so sheep were important to Israelite theology. And so when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, Abram trusted God so much that he says in Genesis 22.8, he says that God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Knowing on one side of his brain he was dragging Isaac up, that he was going to stick him on the altar, and God had told him to, to kill him, to sacrifice him. So he, on one hand, knew that that maybe would happen, but he was also sounding like he was praying and understood God that God is going to provide the lamb for him. And so in Genesis 22, verses 12 and 13, you know, three, five, four or five verses down, God stops the sacrifice and provided a ram, right, a male sheep, as a substitute for Isaac. So, you know, Abram didn't have to go through with it. God provided the lamb for himself for that sacrifice. Right? Again, this is a type of Savior. This is an illustration of foreshadowing of who Jesus is. That ram represents Jesus you know, all the way in the Old Testament. In Exodus, again, the establishment of Passover, the lambs were sacrificed and their blood was put on the doorpost to protect the people from the angel of death. And they would, he would pass over them, right? That's the whole thing. That first Passover holiday, that's what it was. And so they celebrated afterwards every year. And it's no wonder that John's book, he's calling him the Lamb of God and he 
is the Lamb of God and He is the sacrificial Lamb for the Passover. Everything happens all in the Passover. Because again, the whole Passover holiday is preparing people for that. Because they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. There is no change in God's work and His, what He does. All the way in Exodus, the blood of the Lamb saves the people. The blood of the Lamb saves the people. We are the people now. And so with His sacrifice, He cleanses the entire world. He dies to completely restore His creation. But what do we do with this information? What do we do? Oh, there's Jesus. He's the hero. All right, we know we can skip the rest. We know the story. But what do we do with this? How do we act now? How does this hopefully... Well, the Holy Spirit changes us with this word. And so here's the application part. So first, be humble in your walk with Christ. We look at John the Baptist and we know he was... He knew who he was and he knew what his mission was. He knew that he was sent by God to do these things, to talk, to tell people about Jesus. He literally showed people who Jesus was. He pointed them out. Like, there he is. That's the guy. And so Jesus again confirmed that John was Elijah, as was foretold in Malachi, but John didn't think too much of it. Again, this is a little bit repetitive, but I want to kind of stress that point. And Paul likewise didn't, didn't get too wrapped up in being Paul. Where we see people, the celebrities that... You know, they're mildly famous for something and be, it becomes a ridiculous spectacle because they get wrapped up in being famous. They get wrapped up in whatever, their own celebrity. We see that with politicians because they, they go too far off from being a politician to being a celebrity. It's like, look, dude, we hired you to make laws and not gallivant around doing whatever. God does the same thing. He's like, I hired you to go preach the gospel to people. I didn't hire you to get on TV and be famous and do whatever and write books and all these other things. Now, if the book writing and whatever else is important to the, to the mission, then fine. But don't get too big for your britches. Right? Paul was the guy who started a ton of churches. He trained a lot of pastors and disciples all the way through Asia Minor and parts of Europe. But he didn't get ripped up too much into it. Right? He was concerned with preaching Christ crucified. And that gave him confidence even when he was faced with death and imprisonment. So the next part is that we can be confident in your walk with Christ. Because God hired you to do a job, He hired you to do that. You can't be like, well, woe is me, I'm just the children's minister, I'm just the guy who cleans the church, whatever, right? You're here to make the kingdom roll. We're all part of the machine that makes the gospel go out. No matter how small you think your role is, it's big to somebody because without you doing something people don't get to hear the gospel. Right? So don't think for one minute that whatever you do is just too small. And so John the Baptist was not deterred by religious people confronting him about what he was doing. Again, he was the guy living out in the woods eating, eating bugs. But he was the one sent by God with authority. But we know, because we know the reality is if you look at Luke's gospel... And again, this is how they're all intertwined. You have to read them all together to kind of get the whole picture. John's father was a priest. John basically grew up in church. He heard all the stories. He got all the teachings probably. 
So he knew exactly what was going on and what prophecies were what. He had a religious education. And again, Mary, you know, Jesus' mother and Elizabeth, John's mother, probably talked a little more. And on top of that, the, the, the prophecy from the angel that we get from Luke about John, who he is and what he's going to do, you get the one-two punch of somebody who's foreordained to do this job. Now, we may not have that miraculous confirmation. Like, oh, the angel told my mom that I was going to be a pastor. She didn't. There's no story like that. I don't have a story like that. But I know what happened, and so we're all here to do things. So we can be confident because we learn what's what. We understand we're all getting educated, and we learn, and we can tell people who Jesus is. And the last thing is that we need to be Christ-focused, not religion-focused. Right? Be Christ-focused and not religion-focused. So I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to uh, workshop that statement to make sure it sounded right and made sure it made sense yesterday. So some people heard that beforehand to make sure it got smoothed out right. But the people from the temple, they were religious-focused people who had other motives. They were just checking boxes. They were just making sure... Some of them, I think, were genuinely looking for the Messiah because we see some of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, he gets converted. And Joseph of Arimathea also, they think, may have been a Pharisee or in the Sanhedrin at least. So, you know, some of the religious people got who Jesus was. They understood it. But a lot of the other people, especially the ones who, who basically sentenced Jesus to death, they were only concerned with checking all the boxes religiously to make sure everything was kosher. And we, as the church, we have probably been in churches that are like that. Usually we kind of call them legalistic churches. Um, where we get too far wrapped up in the rules, the do's and don'ts. You know, is this appropriate? You know, we can't have coffee in the sanctuary. We can't do this. You can't move a plant. You can't do whatever. And so people don't want that stuff. They don't, they're not here for that. They're here for God. They're here for Christ. And so we need to constantly be that way in our own lives as well. Because John was completely Christ-focused. He was out there doing what he was doing, living how he was living for Christ. But we see the reaction they get, that he gets from the people. Like, Ugh, just go away. Like, I don't, we don't need you here. You're, you're messing things up. Because it seems like for all the questioning and whatever else, they were one day off of seeing the Messiah. Right? John says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Like, if you would have been so concerned, you probably would have come back and seen what John was about a little longer than one day or a few hours. And so here you have the actual introduction to who Jesus is. Now, everything works out for God's timing, so I'm not saying it's, it's not messed up, it's, it's messed up or anything, but, you know, they, they got what they needed and they left. And so I've seen some things recently that said, Jesus would not be welcome in the church today. And I don't completely disagree, depending on the situations. You know, he, be, he, he may be more apt to overthrow the tables in the sanctuary than they come up here and preach. And we need to make sure that we are always welcoming for Jesus to come in. And that means we have to adjust ourselves to who Jesus is. Because we need correction. We need to have those tables overthrown sometimes. And we can't help every church. We're not here to go on a crusade to fix all the churches. We have to take care of our church, ourselves, and our lives. Because we make up the church. 
Right? We need to be not so worried about being religious, and we need to be more concerned with being Christ-focused. So the rules sort themselves out pretty well and pretty easily if you are loving God and loving others. If you love God and want to know to get to know Him, you're going to learn to listen to Him and want to know Him. And so this is not reading your Bible more. I want to make sure that the message is coming to you. This is not read your Bible more and you'll get it. This is read your Bible deeper. So I don't care how many times you've read the Bible in a year or how many, if you read it every year, that's good, that's great. But if there's no change, then you're wasting your time. So if you have to read one paragraph, the same paragraph, every day, all day, every for a whole year, until you get it, that's what you should be doing. Right? I've said it up here before where certain sermons I don't preach because it's not time. I get stuck. And I'm not ready to preach it, so pick something else that I'm okay with as far as how I'm living or whatever it is, and then we'll come back when I've gotten through it. And that's really what we need to do, and that's being Christ-focused because the Word of God should change you to be more Christ-like. So, wrapping it up. When you read your Bible, we read it so we can identify false messiahs and false religions. Right? We read it so we can know what sausage is, but we can know what bacon is. And that's fine, because both are great, but both are not, one's not the other. And so when people come to your door and say, hey, can I talk to you about the good news of the other gospel of Jesus Christ? And like, why do I need another gospel? There's only one good news. I don't need another gospel. I don't need something else, right? We can understand this because we know what the important things, the orthodox items, the big, the big rocks that we all share as Christians. We can say that. And then we can, just like John the Baptist say, Behold, there is the Lamb of, the, Lamb of God. Come take away the world, sins of the world. We can preach to them and say, Well, here's what the gospel says. And we can... Bring them to Christ so they don't have a false idea of what the, what, who God is and who Jesus is. Because as Christians and as the church, Big C and Big C Church, right? That's all the churches. And Little C, our church. Our mission is to teach others about the true Jesus, regardless of what the world says Jesus is. So we know who we're talking about, and we can not just sound smart, but we are smart. We are educated. We can help them. So as we go out this week, think about how you're living. Are you doing these things that I, that I pulled out of this passage that, that can help your life get you more Christ-focused? Because your top ten ways to have a better marriage or better way to spend your money or whatever, that means nothing if you're not Christ-centered. Right, so as we sing our last few songs, right, think about that this week. Think about this. Pray on it. Read it. Let it soak in. Let's go ahead and stand. And we will sing our last few songs.